Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to note an upcoming communications workshop for those of you who are attending the American Society for Gravitational and Space Research meeting this November. It's brought to you by AIBS's own Dr. Robert Gropp and will be held at 8.30 a.m. on the 19th. I strongly encourage you to attend if you possibly can. These sessions are a great way to become a more impactful and engaged communicator. Moving on to today's episode, I was joined by Dr. Christine Webb, who is a college fellow in the Human Evolutionary Biology Department at Harvard. She joined me to talk about the intersection of animal ethics and behavioral science, two closely related fields that she argues are ripe for even closer integration, but I'll let her describe Dr. Webb, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Okay, so to get started, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about animal ethics in general. Uh, I think most of our listeners are familiar with the concept in broad terms, but it's a field that's also been gaining traction recently. And I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about that. Sure, yeah. Um, I think animal ethics, meaning the kind of philosophical uh, school of thought into the moral status of animals, is a topic that has been gaining a lot of traction both um, in scholarship and in society. And there are many reasons for this. Um, you know, the rise in factory farming has kind of pointed out uh, a lot of ethical issues. For now there's more vegans and vegetarians uh, in the world than ever before. Um, and, you know, the more that we know about animal sentience and animal kind of cognitive capacities, the more that raises ethical concerns about our treatment of them, um, not only in these captive settings, but also in the natural world. Um, and the extent of, kind of anthropogenic changes on the natural world, I think, has also uh, contributed to this increased interest and concern for animal ethics. So on the last point, would that be things like, you know, we've we've made habitat alterations that will affect the well-being of animals and we should therefore consider their moral status as well? Yes. Um, habitat uh, changes that we've already made and those that are sure to come uh, with climate change um, and the kind of increasing uh, fragmentation and destruction of their habitats, certainly. And I'm wondering kind of how does animal behavioral science relate to that field? It seems like they should be, you know, kind of tightly intermingled, um, but they're not always. So what's the relationship there and and why aren't they, you know, more tightly intertwined? Yeah, so um, I think the more that we come to learn about the complexity of animal behavior, the complexity of um, their their emotional and cognitive worlds, the more that questions our uh, ethical practices, our treatment of them in, you know, these different settings. Um, and I think that although the link is, is actually quite clear, I mean, uh, it's exemplified in, for example, the uses of um, animal uh, behavior findings and evidence in court cases that are built around granting them legal rights um, in for example, the personhood cases that are now kind of erupting across the U.S. and in parts of Europe. Um, I think even though that scientific evidence is integral, there's been this kind of divide between science and ethics, not just when it comes to animal science and animal ethics, but just science and ethics more broadly. 
um, that that is has traditionally been pervasive, and al although it might be closing uh, bit by bit now, there's still a lack of dialogue uh, between the two fields that um, I think is exemplified by animal ethics and animal behavior. Okay, I want to talk more about that gap in just a second. But before we do, uh, can we chat a little bit about those personhood cases and some of the ways in which you know the uh, behavioral science feeds directly into the ethical conversations? Uh, and can we use one of the personhood cases as an example? You know, how do those usually play out? Sure. So um, one example might be self-awareness. So legal personhood cases are are built around capacities like self-awareness and autonomy and um, animal behavioral studies have been interested in the capacity for self-awareness for quite some time. Um, and although, you know, some of the tasks that they have developed to study something like self-awareness, which would be mere self-recognition, um, I think are inherently biased in many ways towards humans and towards visual species more generally. Um, it is an example, a good example of the kinds of research that um, are being used in uh, the court to, to build legal personhood cases. And a legal personhood case would essentially, you know, grant the animal uh, some degree of legal protection from harm under the law. Yes, exactly. It would grant them basic interests and rights. And, and actually, I hope, you know, I hope you don't mind an aside. I was kind of curious to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the self-recognition tests. You say that it, it's a problem because it's biased toward visual species. So, you know, a dog, for instance, would do poorly on one of those tests. Yeah, dogs were traditionally thought to um, pass self-recognition tests because they were um, given mirror self-recognition tests. But then later work started to emphasize um, olfactory mirroring tasks where, you know, you, you look at whether they can recognize their own scent as compared to other scents. Um, and when you start to shift uh, the focus to be more consistent with uh, an organism's sensory capacity, sensory, you know, modalities, then um, dogs passed the olfactory mirror tests, which would suggest that they do have self-awareness. And so, um, yeah, I think that the, the, the key is to really understand things from the organism's perspective, which is a way I think that, that ethics and, and kind of philosophy more broadly can inform animal behavior sciences in a way that improves the science that is being conducted and also leads to um, evidence that will be very relevant to ethical debates and theory. So in a sense, you're, you're sort of advocating for kind of a win-win situation in this, because if you had the test and you, were, and you were purely trying to evaluate dogs in a very empirical way that, that was the way that we would evaluate people or, or other visual species, um, you would fail. But if you take the time and sort of you know, place yourself in the mind of dogs, you might come to a different conclusion that would allow you to test them more effectively. Yeah, exactly. And and that um, interest in understanding animal minds is something that is on the rise very much in philosophy. And um, even though there are plenty of, of scientists out there who are also interested in animal mental worlds, um, traditionally, I think the, the, the focus has been on understanding behavior and that um, emotion and cognition, you know, are in a way... Uh, a bit more unknowable. We can never understand what's going on inside of um, an animal's mind. And I think what, what philosophy has kind of brought to the table is, is that, well, 
that that's not necessarily the case, or if that is the case, then we, we must say the same for our fellow human beings. And so it has given us um, more of a, a window and different avenues of approaching the question of animal minds and emotions um, that I think is, is really important um, both to the science and to the ethical decisions that might result. Okay, and I, you know, I hope we can take just a little tiny step back um, and discuss, you know, some of the reason why there may have been some historical reticence on the part of behavioral scientists toward that type of thinking. You know, it's it termed um, anthropo denial or you know a fear of anthropomorphism. What's the history of that, and how has that you know led to a, a sort of a, a gap between the philosophy and science elements in this field? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a long-standing history, and it would be kind of impossible to trace all of the different um, incarnations of of this bias. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, Descartes' view of animals as as machines um, and uh, kind of the dualities between human beings and other creatures set the um, conditions for some of the behaviorist movements that also understood animals as being automatic um, objects rather than subjective agents. Um, I think that that these kind of philosophical and, and scientific traditions have largely contributed to um, this divide between kind of what we would uh, consider modern day animal behavior research and um, animal ethics and animal philosophy more broadly. The latter, which really takes the subjective worlds of animals incredibly seriously um, and is built around, you know, this, this motivation to understand the inner workings of the animal mind. And so um, I think that that's sort of been the, those are there's been philosophical and kind of scientific um, traditions that have limited that conversation. Okay, we've hinted a little bit about the case for you know uh, breaking with that tradition and bringing in some understanding of you know animals' subjective experiences into the behavioral science. You know, kind of what's the broadly speaking, what's the case for making that move and making that shift in practice among behavioral scientists? Well, for one, I think it's actually um, inevitable that these questions um, and that animal ethics as a field in general is just going to continue to be on the rise. And that, um, you know, I, I, I believe that, and I think my, my co-authors actually shared this sentiment that um, it becomes ever more crucial for scientists to actually engage with these issues. Otherwise, um, you know, they will potentially continue to marginalize themselves from from conversations that will just become increasingly important. Um, and I think, you know, scientists, their their work continually directly informs this research. And so they should also be at the table um, on to, to to guide and direct how their evidence um, is interpreted and used. So I think, you know, just from a very practical scientific standpoint, um, scientists absolutely need to become more engaged. Uh, and then there's also an ethical responsibility. Um, you know, science and, and politics are not uh, as separate as I think sometimes scientists would like to believe that they are. And so actually scientists do have a, a moral responsibility to, um, to get involved. And then 
all of this is, is not to say that there aren't major benefits to science as well um, in, in kind of opening new lines of inquiry, in, in uh, realizing a new and important applied dimension of their research, in, like I was mentioning before, improving the quality of their science by taking the subjective perception of their study systems more seriously. Okay, so initially, it's a largely consideration of the fact that this conversation, the ethical and philosophical conversation, is going to be ongoing no matter what. It's probably going to be drawing from the empirical work that they're doing, and it's simply a case of whether they want to be enmeshed in that conversation or would rather um, step back and have you know no say in it whatsoever. Yeah, exactly, and and potentially as a result, um, be be criticized. And I think you know, like there's back to your question about the the history of this divide. I mean, there's certainly been a, a sense of tension sometimes between scientists and ethicists because they aren't fully aware of the other's fields, of the types of research that are being done. Um, and they, there might be some misunderstandings between the two camps uh, that could be ameliorated by having uh, more, more discussions. And I think, you know, because this is such an important emerging topic in society, um, in terms of the success of their very own field, I think it's important for scientists to to engage more. Okay, let's chat a little bit about, you know, the way that um, the work, that the empirical work can inform, um, you know, some of the philosophical work. So, you know, let's, let's take an example. I'll, I'll, I'll posit one, but feel free to t uh, take it, toss it out, and substitute another one. You know, how does something like uh, the recent fish pain studies um, influence our understanding philosophically of, you know, the inner lives of, of animals such as fish? Yeah, well, I think um, beyond acknowledging that fish are sentient beings, um, it then calls into question many practices concerning human treatment of fish, such as um, the overfishing and the way that we fish. Um, and so I think that, you know, research on, on pain and sentience has a very clear direct, you know, um, implication for how we're treating other animals. But beyond, you know, just pain and, and sentience, I think there's a host of other um, uh, findings, you know, just that animals have tools that and they make and use tools that they um, have these complex social worlds, uh, you know, culture, symbolic communication. Um, they, you know, can understand others' mental states and they have social emotions like empathy. Um, I think all of these signs of evidence suggest that humans are, are not as special as we once thought we were. Um, and so they really call into question any kind of um, humanist ways of, of thinking, um, which have been predominant in um, many different kind of schools of philosophy. So I think, um, you know, beyond, there, there's, there's many, many different ways, um, and certainly sentience and pain is one example, but then there are, there's a host of others as well. And if you don't mind, let's look at some of those examples. Um, I suppose we could start with your own work, which is on empathy and consolation in animals. You know, how is that work conducted? Um, well, so for uh, the work that I do, um, it's mostly, you know, it's, it's all behavioral observations. Um, 
And so after aggression occurs, for example, so a conflict between two individuals, um, you look at the rest of the group's behavior towards the victim uh, who often, you know, exhibiting signs of distress. Um, and so when a bystander comes over and offers some comforting contact, affiliation with the victim of the aggression, we call that behavior consolation, um, which is known to kind of reduce the stress of the recipient. It's known to occur most often in close social bonds. There's a lot of reasons why this behavior is kind of consistent with an empathy hypothesis, with an empathy explanation. And so um, that's sort of one behavioral context where we look at consolation. Those are some reasons why we think it is a good window onto animal empathetic tendencies. And is this work uh, primarily carried out on primates or is it other species as well? So my work is, is uh, with primates, but there's been a lot of other species um, where constellation studies uh, have been have been done. I mean, not just in, in mammals like cetaceans and elephants, but also in, in some avian species and corvids. Um, and so, yeah, the circle continues to widen in terms of the the species that we consider to have social emotions like empathy. It's it sounds like that there's a, a rather broad chipping away of the myth of you know sort of um, you know uh, human particularity as, as as far as many of these traits. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think again, the sometimes the way that we have traditionally studied these phenomena have stacked. The car stack the deck against other animals um, being successful because we've maybe done created an experiment or a task or just a, a study protocol that is inherently anthropocentric, um, which you know then doesn't actually um, it doesn't actually counter counter this bias, right? It only it only kind of furthers this this notion that humans are are better. But the more carefully we can design studies um, to study animals on their own terms and use philosophy as a way of kind of doing that, I think the better research that will be done and the more these capacities um, that are certainly you now not human unique will be illuminated. So would that be doing things like reworking studies like the one we discussed earlier, um, you know, in which dogs failed the self-awareness test when it was visual, but if you rework the test so that it's scent-oriented and better suited to them, uh, they tend to do better. Yeah, I think that's one way. And then another major way, of course, is is um, understanding, for example, for a very complex social species, studying them in a captive setting where they don't have a rich social environment might not be the most conducive to um, understanding their, their social skills, right? Or just their general um, functioning will be disrupted by being in a stressful environment. Um, so I think that, you know, appreciating the the rich subjective experiences that animals have um, not only lead you to design kind of better tasks, but also just understand the environments in which they thrive and therefore would be even, um, you know, kind of capable of performing or, or just uh, behaving in the way that they would normally behave. I think a lot of um, the research that unfortunately... Um, you know, shows maybe that animals aren't as um, social or aren't as wise as humans in some regard may actually be an artifact of the experimental design or the stress that an animal is under um, just from being in a highly artificial 
captive environment. Yeah, and I remember one of the studies that you cited was on um, mice and the fact that they had a higher stress response to uh, male investigators than they did to female investigators, which would obviously kind of confound everything. Um, but more broadly speaking, I think we've discussed the benefits that will accrue to uh, behavioral scientists if they take this on board, and we've discussed some of the benefits that will accrue to ethicists if the same happens. Uh, but I'm wondering now, you know, how does that happen? What are the next steps? What should uh, those who study animal behavior be doing in order to, you know, make the shift take place? Yeah, I mean, I think the the starting point is really just familiarity with animal ethics as a field, um, appreciating that it's it's not just this. I think a lot of times when scientists hear the term animal ethics, they think about the set of regulations that um, guide their research protocols. But animal ethics is really, you know, a much bigger um, school of thought that's built on rational argumentation. And I think just familiarizing themselves with this this field, with this discipline, um, you know, reading some of the seminal works in that discipline is is, is a very logical starting point um, because then at least they are aware of of what is going on in this this rapidly kind of progressing field um, and how their work has been and and will continue to be relevant to it. So I think that's that's the first step is just you know, familiarity, but then I think there are a number of, of different ways. Um, and we actually kind of discussed some of those in the paper. I think one, one obvious way um, is that, you know, scientists have this, uh, or they're kind of perceived as, as the authorities when it comes to um, animal behavior. And even though it's quite commonplace for scientists to emphasize the conservation implications of their work. So animal behavior scientists might emphasize, you know, that their work has implications for conservation, kind of other broader um, ethical implications related to their work are relatively underemphasized. And so because they're perceived as the authorities on um, these issues, there's a great opportunity for them to speak towards ethical um ideas in their public outreach activities. Um, and, you know, the more that societally, you know, people become interested in, in animals, um, the more this kind of creates an opportunity for scientists to engage with this kind of philosophical debates um, about animal moral status. So in some sense, you know, they are they're already doing this in, in uh, you know, delving into value laden fields like conservation. Uh, but if they were able to add this as well, they would they would be able to reach more people and have um, a valuable impact uh, of their work that otherwise wouldn't be realized. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, as scientists are increasingly kind of uh, pushed to justify the practical implications of their work, I, I really do um, believe that this is a, a very good opportunity for them to have another applied dimension of, of their research. Well, that does sound like a really great opportunity and also a good point for us to leave it. Thank you very much for joining me, Dr. Webb. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences, and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.